Welcome to the latest Freshfield podcast. I'm Boris Feldman, one of the partners in Silicon Valley. We welcome all of the firm's clients, staff, and friends to this, and we hope that when the lockdown eases, we'll be able to invite you to our new office. Meanwhile, I'd like to have some of the new partners who've joined the firm for the launch introduce themselves. Madge first, please. Hi everyone, my name is Madge Vasecki. I am a compensation and benefits attorney and I'm excited to be sharing this podcast with all of you. Doro? Sure, hi everyone. My name is Doro Gavril. I'm a securities litigator just like Boris in our newly opened uh, Silicon Valley office. John? Hi, my name is John Fisher. I'm a technology and life sciences M&A attorney. I'm incredibly excited to be a part of this podcast and to join Freshfields. Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah Solem. I'm a corporate partner. I work with both technology companies and healthcare companies on corporate transactions, uh, particularly in the capital market space. We have two other founding partners who are going to be moving out to Silicon Valley to join the five of us. One is Pamela Markalese, a national leader in corporate governance and activism issues, who's going to be moving out from New York. And Alan Ryan, who's one of the firm's senior competition lawyers in Brussels is relocating to Palo Alto with his wife and family. We're gonna begin by talking about COVID and the impact on companies and trends in Silicon Valley. And I'd like to begin with Sarah, if I could. In the world of shareholder activism, do you think that the pandemic and the economic turmoil are going to cause shareholder activists to pull back? And what corporate issues do you think they'll most focus on in the coming year or two? Activists have pulled back, or at least it seemed like they pulled back a bit at first, particularly in March and April, but they didn't disappear. Um, We know that they've made a number of toehold investments and we'll know more in mid-August when some of the 13F filings come due. And I think technology is, is too attractive of a sector for activists to leave alone. I think what will change is more their focus. So companies will not be pressured so much to become more efficient in their use of capital. They'll be less focused on share buybacks and dividends. But I think there'll be plenty of focus on exploring sales companies that should be sold, or maybe breakups where companies have different segments and some of them have different values. And there may also be a focus on cost cutting. And certainly activists, if they think one of those initiatives are worth pursuing, there'll be pressure on boards to try and get seats on the board or take other actions like, you know, if the CEO is seen as underperforming, for example. Sarah, John, Madge, there's been a lot of writing lately about a stakeholder focus in broadening the board's duties beyond just shareholders to others. Is that just a blog topic or in the clients you advise, do you see it actually affecting boards? And do you think this is gonna be a big move in corporate governance or just something that the intellectuals like to chat about? Absolutely. I don't think this is just a blog topic. I think boards are very focused on not just speaking to their shareholders, but speaking to all of their stakeholders, including their employees, including their vendors, 
on other third parties that have an impact on their business. It's really part of the movement in ESG and making sure that your, your business is speaking to all of its stakeholders so that it can be more sustainable going forward. I 100% agree with that. I think, and the leaders in this may be the companies that are going to go public in the near term. We saw uh, another company go public as a public benefit corporation, which is a Delaware law that specifically allows boards to embrace not only stockholders, but other stakeholders. There haven't been many public benefit corporations yet, but these are issues that not only big, big companies talk about and focus on, and I think many of them actually believe in, many of the founders and CEOs of some of the biggest unicorns are focused on these. And I think we're going to see more and more focus on ESG and specifically companies looking at becoming public benefit corporations. Dora, you know, the, the judges in Delaware tend to read these articles by sort of key figures in the corporate bar if you were defending a merger in Delaware, would you feel comfortable saying that the board had looked to stakeholder interests beyond just the dollar value to the shareholders? Or do you think you'd get in trouble with the judges there? I think I might make the argument and still get in trouble with the judges. Uh, look, as you very well know, there has been recently, including from former Chief Justice Strine, greater openness to considering the interests of stakeholders other than just owners of shares. Revlon is still good law. It's unlikely that it's going to change in the coming years by judicial fiat. There may have to be legislative adjustments to fully empower us to, to make these types of arguments. In the meantime, depending on the nature of the client and how sympathetic the facts are, and exactly what the process was. Those may be arguments that might be made, but I would look at them on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I want to turn to COVID vaccines. Not that as a person in the most target group, I care about that or anything. John, you've done a lot of funding for life science companies. To what extent do you think the money being spent on COVID will impact the funding priorities for venture capitalists in private equity? Well, I think there's an entire category of companies now that frankly, you know, may have received funding six months ago, probably won't receive funding going forward. And those are companies that are developing drug treatments for non-life-threatening indications. And, and that's due primarily to, you know, not being able to conduct clinical trials, right? If you if you look at, you know, hospitals across the country, which is where, you know, a lot of medical, you know, monitoring analysis and data gathering takes place, you know, during clinical trials, they're, they're overwhelmed with co treating COVID, right? And if you look generally at life science funding and exits in general, first half of 2020, you see a lot of collaborations, licensing, partner arrangements, option deals. It's not your traditional M&A exit. I think, you know, there have been 15 deals that are, you know, valued at a billion or more in the first half of 2020. And it looks very different than the sort of M&A defined landscape that we saw in 2019. Do you think the ways in which major pharmaceutical companies partner or acquire smaller companies is going to change over the next year or two in light of COVID, or will it continue in the same manner as it has? 
I think they're going to pursue more alternative structures, right? You know, for example, you know, option deals where, you know, they have a fully negotiated merger agreement and a collaboration or a licensing arrangement with the target, but they're not actually going out of pocket in connection with purchasing that target in connection with the M&A deal. And they may exercise the option two, three, four years from now. So it's a way for startup companies to have access to data scientists, lab facilities, engineers, without the big pharma being required to write a check at closing in connection with an acquisition. And, you know, I, I feel like in 2019, M&A really defined what it meant to, you know, w- what it meant for Big Pharma to acquire and enter into relationships with life sciences startups. And, and now, frankly, I, I see M&A dropping and alternative commercial arrangements dominating the market. I, I'd like to talk about people and Madge is our people expert as an executive comp and employee benefits lawyer. Historically, one of the advantages of Silicon Valley for tech companies was the deep concentration of talent in a relatively small area. How do you see work at home culture evolving and affecting the Valley's hold on startups? And to what degree do you think it will change the geographic dispersion of new technology companies? So it's, it's a very good question. The reality is we don't know the degree of the impact yet. It'll depend on if this is more permanent or temporary. We've had several large tech companies announce that employees can work from home indefinitely. I know that other companies are being asked the same question from employees who now have moved back home and want to continue working for that company indefinitely from home. And and those other companies are now looking at their policies and programs and see what changes they can make, what they're comfortable with. I think it's the biggest impact we've seen so far are on these really large companies who are really embracing the notion and thinking about some of the cost savings and other aspects of it. I think the question that I've been thinking about and I don't know the answer to is, is there really going to be an impact on the actual, like the very early stage companies, the ones who meet each other, you know, downtown Palo Alto or that otherwise are in each other's worlds because of the small but mighty web of people here in Silicon Valley. I don't know that you could ever replicate that on Zoom as much as I love Zoom. John, I want to talk to you about government funding. We talked about private money. I, I think most observers agree that whatever happens in the elections this November, the United States, among other countries, is never going to be caught undersupplied for a future pandemic and that there will be a massive infrastructure build. Do you think that most of the money that the government, at least in the U.S., spends for the next pandemic is going to be a tech spend, or will it be more traditional hospital supply construction? First, Boris, I'm always amazed by your optimism. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if I would put my poker chips on the U.S. not being underprepared for the next pandemic. Um, but but assuming your premise is correct, I mean, I think it'll be a mix of both, right? And you know, it, it reminds me of you know when folks talk about life science bio deals versus technology deals, and they want to put them into two separate buckets. I mean, many products and technologies overlap, right? If you're looking at DNA sequencing, right, it's really at its core a software company. It's software that drives the DNA sequencing and and informs the technology of the company. And in the same way, here 
right? I feel that technology will help improve infrastructure and products. And then folks will also invest in buying those infrastructure and products so that things like face masks and, you know, personal protective gear are readily available the next time something like this hits. But on the technology side, you also, for example, want to invest in tracking and data analysis and and medical technologies that you know would facilitate our response to a future pandemic. I, I want to turn to a topic that for every public company in America is a front burner issue, which is, are they going to get sued by their shareholders because of COVID? And Dora, maybe you could lay out the landscape on that in which people need to be particularly worried about it. The way I would think about this is there will be a specific type of company companies that deal with travel, hospitality, and so forth, that are the areas most directly impacted by COVID. So you're absolutely going to have those companies bear the brunt of such litigation. Now, taking a step back from that, we should think about, are there other companies whose business is being affected by COVID in a way not shared by industry peers? Those companies are likely to have a renewed level of scrutiny from the plaintiff's bar and possibly regulators regarding past disclosures. There have been proposed changes, as you very well know, in January of this year by the Securities and Exchange Commission to Reg SK. And that deals directly with things like trends and risks and so forth. Without going into the details of that, there will be a question whether further disclosures would be necessary from certain companies to better explain risks that would make them more, that are specific to the company and would make them more exposed to uh, an event such as COVID. Obviously, nobody can predict how COVID is going to turn out. I think the last time we had something of, of this scale may have been right after First World War, and before that, it was 14th century. So we'll take this as a rare event. From the perspective of securities litigation, I would say you have to look at how this argument is going to play out in the courts. And what COVID is going to make more difficult for plaintiffs to do is to plead and prove loss causation. Loss causation is an element, a required element of a securities stock drop case that alleges fraud. And as you very well know, it's an argument that's usually left for summary judgment. Plaintiffs usually are able to plead right through it. If there are meritorious lawsuits by plaintiffs, I can see how courts rather than leave the issue of loss causation until summary judgment that has been the case so far, might bring it forward to the motion to dismiss stage and might apply higher scrutiny than is usual at the pleading stage regarding the, the, those allegations. A second effect that we may see is that a defendant that may otherwise have paid lip service to an argument against loss causation at the summary judgment stage might now really double down on it and really attempt to win that particular argument with renewed evidence regarding the impact of COVID on loss causation. Sarah, you talk to general counsels all the time about their disclosures and their quarterly filings. Is your advice as to what they need to focus on changing in light of COVID or has it pretty much remained the same? Great question. The general principles are the same, and Doro just highlighted them. If there are trends that you're starting to see, though investors should be made aware of those, and that's the whole purpose of MDNA. And the SEC has moved more and more towards principles-based disclosures rather than prescriptive disclosures. 
The problem is for many companies, especially earlier in the pandemic, they really didn't know what the effects of the pandemic were going to be long term. Certainly for Q1 companies, it only affected the last month, their quarter. Now we're, you know, obviously a lot further along. Companies should just be upfront about what they do know, what they're starting to see and what they don't know. And if a company is not ready to give guidance, then they shouldn't give guidance. The ability to do the right thing is just really hard in these circumstances because there's so none of us have a crystal ball and it's hard to get the right level of disclosure that will be meaningful to investors and not somehow put a company in a worse position down the road should there ever be litigation. I want to turn to how deals break up into how merger agreements are going to evolve. We've already seen a fair number of busted mergers and litigation over that. And John and Dora, if you could just give our audience in radio land a sense of what's happening with that and how merger, how you think those are going to turn out in court, largely in Delaware, and how you think merger agreements may adapt. You know, something Sarah just said really resonated with me. It was a theme of uncertainty, right? And, and I feel like that theme now plays itself throughout the merge agreement. And, and the two areas where I see it the most, provisions around closing certainty and provisions around the conduct of the company's business, right? I feel like folks don't fully appreciate the impact that COVID will have on the transaction, on the business, they're not completely sure if they need to turn left or right after they sign a merge agreement to adapt and to respond to evolving circumstances. And so, so increasingly, you know, I see sellers want as much flexibility as possible to conduct their business in a way to minimize the impact of COVID after signing. And so what were historically very tight operating covenants are now, I think, you know, allow for a bit more flexibility to be nimble and adapt and respond to COVID once the merge agreement is signed. And then around closing certainty, right? Sellers in this environment, you know, absolutely want to make clear that COVID and things that are directly or indirectly a result of COVID should not be a reason for the buyer to walk away from the transaction. And so, you know, a lot of discussions around material adverse effect and what that means, a lot of conversations around uh, the bring down condition related to the operating covenants. And from a buyer's perspective, I think there is a, a bit of sympathy on, you know, allowing the, the seller to, you know, respond to COVID at the same time, you know, sort of an overly broad carve out that picks up, you know, items that are unrelated to COVID folks feel would not be appropriate. Doro, as these busted deal cases start to go to trial in Delaware, what do you think the judges there are going to do with them? I would not presume to predict what the Chancery Court is going to do with respect to uh, these types of issues. But one of the things that one would want to look at is the language of MAE clauses, materially adverse event clauses. And what we have seen so far are MAE clauses that have generic carve-outs, generally carve-out related to industry conditions, that excludes changes disproportionately affecting the target as opposed to other industry peers. The problem with these types of carve-outs is that they lead to difficult issues of proof, battle of the experts. It becomes a very factual inquiry. And that anytime you have something like this, it will increase the risk to the deal. It increases the unpredictability of the final outcome. 
And, and look, uh, just on a personal anecdote level, if I were to think about MAE clauses, when I was a summer associate a good number of years ago, one of my first assignment was to actually do some research on MAE cases. And I think I came up with a handful. Uh, there were all the ones that we would normally think of, uh, IBP, Hexion, Tyson Foods, and, and so on. And it's funny because just this summer, I had a chance to give an assignment to two wonderful summer associates at Freshfields to do the exact same thing, to look at the landscape of MAE uh, litigation since then. And um, let's say that they have come back with quite a few more. So the landscape has changed. I feel like future litigation may center around whether folks after signing have been operating the company in the ordinary course of business, because I don't think that's been the case for a lot of target companies, right? I feel like they're doing a lot of things in connection with COVID that they would not have done six months ago, a year ago. And I almost wonder, is it operating in the ordinary course of business during the pandemic? Like if you're signing a deal now, <laughs> right? It would have to be as compared to those deals that got signed late February, early March, where there was one ordinary course and then a wholly new ordinary course of business just a, a month later. So we just closed a very large deal and the, the target had multiple rifts during the process. But I mean, at every corner, they were going to the buyer and getting consent for that act. I think there's the things you need consents for, but it's also affirmatively operating, the, the affirmative covenants to keep doing what you're supposed to do in the ordinary course that is just now different in the new environment. At least that's how I was thinking about it. I want to turn to one final topic before we wrap it up. I was getting calls, so I bet Sarah was getting many calls and others on the podcast from CEOs saying, hey, my company wants to take out a PPP loan, but I have to sign this certification. How big a deal is that? And if I were your cousin, would you tell me I should sign it or not? My experience has been interesting. In all cases, my clients fully believe that they were eligible uh, for the loan and that they met the criteria. But at, over time, there was a lot of press about, for example, is a venture capital-backed company really the appropriate recipient of PPP funds when they have, in many cases, many venture capital investors that they could go to and ask for money. So I had a client receive a loan and then after a couple of weeks and other companies being poster children for having taken the money, they decided to give it back. Not because they thought they did anything wrong in taking it, but rather because they didn't want to be in the spotlight for having, having taken it. On the public company side, there are companies who have taken the money. My clients, as they thought about it, they thought it sent the wrong signal to the market to take government money, that it would somehow at least in the case of these particular clients, suggests that they were not in as good a shape as they thought they were. Not to say that everything was great, but they didn't want to have to be defending their use of government money. Doru, are PPP certification prosecutions going to be the next big thing or a nothing burger? I wouldn't jump straight to prosecutions. I would look at what the SEC has been doing on the civil side. And on the civil side, we do know that in March, uh, the SEC created a coronavirus steering committee. And the efforts of those committee were, I think, discussed in, in some detail in May, subsequently, by the, uh, one of the co-heads of the SEC's enforcement division. 
at the Enforcement Forum West. And what we do know in months subsequent to that uh, event is that the SEC has sent voluntary requests for information to a variety of companies asking them for information regarding their compliance with the terms of PPP loans and, and other such information. So we do know that that inquiry is underway. It's, it's not speculative. Whether it will lead to criminal prosecutions, I think that's multiple steps removed. I'm sure that in any a program of the magnitude of, of PPP, there will probably be some abuses and we'll, we'll have to see which agencies become involved. But taking a step back from that, I think that what's really important is to understand the scenarios that can lead to a company being in trouble, if you will, or having some concerns about these regulators. And one of them is distressed company that in public statement touts the company performance, but then it takes a loan. And then somebody with the benefit of hindsight would be looking at that and say, okay, well, what has happened? Why were you making these positive statements on day one and then on day two? you took a PPP loan, and that could be the plaintiffs or that could be uh, the SEC. I think in a situation like that, it will be the company's burden perhaps to show to a regulator, for example, that at the time when they were making the statements, they did not know how COVID was affecting their business. But notice how that is becoming quickly a fact-intensive inquiry, and that may lead to, to some difficulties for the company. Another way to look at this is for a company to take a loan, but without making prior disclosures of material changes or a negative trend. Somebody is then going to look at that and will say, hmm, maybe you omitted some information, right? So that, that will be another lens through which to look at this. And finally, you will have a company that is doing financially well and is stable, but then still ends up taking a loan. And then obviously a regulator will look at that and say, how are you complying with the terms of the loan if, in fact, you are in no significant distress? So I think those are the scenarios that we need to be mindful of as we go uh, forward. We're going to bring to a close podcast one from your Silicon Valley office on COVID. Join us next time for podcast two, in which we talk about gender and diversity issues, director comp, and IPO versus acquisition. Thank you.